This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I'm your co-host, Demi. And we finally made it to the final episode on Charlayan and the Scions, because there were just so, so many Scions that we had to cover. And even though we haven't even gotten to them all, uh, we wanted to cover our favorites, the important ones. Yeah, there's still so many that we have to do, though. So hopefully we can get through all of these in one episode. And even though not all of them ended up having spent some time of their life in Charlayan, we did want to kind of brush up on them and, and, you know, give you an introduction to who they are if you're new to the game or just give you some information about them to help you as you roleplay. Even though, sadly, folks have come and gone from the Scions for various reasons. <laughs> and, for example, in Stormblood, some are becoming more prominent than they were before. There are some that have been with us, sometimes from the very beginning, or even have been around since the time of 1.0. For example... We're going to start with Yastola. Just as she is your Scion connection, if you have a character starting in Limsa, she also played the same role in 1.0. And her personality was very much the same then. Very, like, no-nonsense, smart, a little sassy, not even afraid to stand up to Merloab and tell her that uh, she's wrong, which sometimes she is. I know I love her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All of our Alliance leaders make mistakes. Yes. But perfect people are boring. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yustola, I would sort of argue, might have a little bit more of a one-dimensional personality than some of the other characters, but she does have a pretty interesting backstory, I think, compared to a lot of the other Scions. In that, she was one of the Scions who did not attend the Studium before becoming an Archon. Instead of being in Charlay and, and attending the Studium, she spent a lot of time studying with Matoya in her cave, in the Dravanian hinterlands, I believe it was. And even though she spent time studying with Matoya, even though she didn't really have any formal schooling, so to speak, she still ended up becoming an Archon and ended up specializing in the arcane arts. A lot of, you know, magic, and that's why she's a conjurer. What I think that does show, though, is that you don't have to be part of the studium to become an Archon. So even though it's not a guaranteed ticket to become an Archon, you know, it's not necessary. So you could really become an Archon, even coming from all sorts of manners of life, which I, I think that's pretty cool. You know, Louis Law, yeah, yeah. Louis Law must have seen the best in her and her personality and thought, hey, she has a lot to contribute. She obviously wants to help aid the realm however she can. She clearly shows determination. Hey, she'd be a good Archon. Yeah, and she had the balls to throw herself into the live stream, along with Thancred, during the whole bloody banquet. Very true. And even as she did that, even though she did end up coming back, she continues to push herself, some might argue to the point where she is literally killing herself, and being able to, so to speak, see people by figuring out where their Aether is. Yeah, she got the Aether eyes, so she may not last... <laughs> There's a doom counter over her head. There is, but that said, I think having that doom counter and, in my opinion, her being one of the characters who you don't really see many of her character flaws, exploring that, exploring her maybe stubbornness and seeing where that takes her could end up having her become a much more fleshed out character than what we see now. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you don't get a full view of a character as a two-dimensional, three-dimensional person until you start to see their downsides. And we just haven't seen enough of that from Yastola. However, she may have inherited certain traits of personality from Atoya. Even though she didn't go to the official Charlene Higher Institution of Learning, private tutoring by someone as smart as Matoya was no joke. Oh, definitely. It may even have taught her more than she would have learned in conventional school. It might have. I mean, I'm sure that she probably was more able to ask whatever questions she wanted, so long as Matoya was willing to answer them, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Around the clock schooling. Right. So in contrast to Yastola's schooling, one Archon, who was very much the model student of Louis Soi, some would even say his favorite. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about here. Yes, that would be Papalimo. Papalimo, may he ever walk in the light of the crystal. Yes, yes. So the first thing I want to note is that anytime someone tries to tell you that Lollafell are children, just go ahead and remind them that Papalimo was 42 when he died. There are a lot of Lollafell who are older. But Papa Limo, especially, I think in his, in the way that he carries himself and the way that he speaks, it's very evident that he is definitely no child. <laughs> yep. And he also appeared in the 1.0 story alongside, well, a woman who may have been Lise, who may have been the original Ida. Do we know for sure whether the woman in 1.0 is Ida or Lise? I think we do, because 1.0 took place, like, right before the Calamity, right? And Ida died, what was it, like, seven years prior? So who we're seeing right now is not Ida, but actually Lise. Okay, cool, yeah. It does seem like the way that she acts in the cutscenes that I've seen from 1.0 kind of match the way she acts in Realm Reborn. A little ditzy, a little airheaded... <laughs> Seems to be questioning everything. And that whole situation, really, looking back on it in retrospect, it seems so strange, honestly. Because Papa Limo was Ida's best friend. She dies. And Lise definitely had her own problem in not having her own identity, wanting to take on her sister's identity. But Papa Limo 100% enabled that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why he did. Did he just do it out of pity? Or was it his own kind of strange way of dealing with his grief? Maybe he's like, yeah, this girl really should not be acting as a replacement for her sister. But deep down, I like the comfort of having a replacement for my best friend. I could see that. I could see that. I think it might have been a combination of both. I can imagine that where maybe initially it was Papalimo's way of sort of grieving and getting over it and Lisa's as well. Maybe the two of them sort of needed that for a while, but then toward the end of Heaven's Word, and as we get into Stormblood, of course, Papalimo seemed to be sort of pushing Lise into becoming her own person. Like, you know, I'm not going to be here anymore. Go be your own person, you know? So I think Papalimo may have gotten over that long before Lise ever did. Yeah, yeah. My feeling was that he started to do that because the situation had started to develop in El Amigo. And he figured she eventually can and should go fight for Alamigo. I need to help prepare her for that time because things are going to be way different. Mm -hmm. Probably he assumed that she would leave and he would stay on the Scions, but it didn't quite work out that way. <sighs> in 3.5, he follows in the footsteps of Louisois and makes a noble sacrifice for the sake of the realm. Because fuck you, Elbert. Sloppy! <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I agree. 
I am going to put a sloppy in there, by the way. Sloppy. Just, we're going to bring that back for this episode for a little bit. Anyway, but it, it did buy the realm some more time. And so it was a sacrifice that even if he couldn't completely contain Shinryu, he still was able to really save the world in that moment, which led to everything going on in All Amigo as it did. Yeah. But my mind definitely goes into those flashback situations. What was it like right after Ida's death? Did Lise ever show her own true individual self to Papalimo? If anyone, it would have been to him. Or did she just wholeheartedly take on this life of acting? Uh, we need so many flashbacks. We really do. Essie, please. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's sort of what the role players. It's our responsibility to do. Yeah, yeah. So, however, we do have some Lalafell that have still survived to the present day. We do. <laughs> we do. Now, the first one that comes to mind, actually, I was initially wondering whether or not we should put her in this episode, but I figured it would be a good idea. She's not an Archon. She is not from Charlayan. In fact, I don't think she really ever spent any time in Charlayan itself. Uh, but, but we still cannot really talk about the Scions without talking about the receptionist, Tataru. Receptionist, accountant, fashion designer. She aspired to be an arcanist at one point, gave that up. And a minor. And a minor, that too. She's done so many things and worn so many outfits, really. <laughs> she is a Jill of all trades. She is. <laughs> now, Tataru, Tataru, like I said, is not from Charlay, and she actually comes from Ulda and was, believe it or not, part of a wealthy merchant family at first. However, her family ended up losing its wealth. It was bad investments by her father. Poor Tataru. Poor, poor Tataru. Yeah. So in order to make money for her family, she went to work and she became a jeweler's apprentice, actually, in Ulda. And it was there that she made friends with Minfilia. And through that bond, I guess Minfilia just liked her. And when the Path of the Twelve was founded, it was then that Minfilia ended up hiring her on as treasurer, which actually I think is kind of ironic given the investments that her <laughs> father made. But apparently Tataru must have been much better than her father at that because, you know, obviously the Scions are still going to this day. Yeah, there's a little snippet Indeed. on, on Tataru there. Yes, she's not a warrior, but she is the accountant of light. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and in Stormblood, I do like that we got to see sort of her more uh, scheming side through her interactions with Carvalain. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Actually, looking back, I guess the whole Tataru is evil, Tataru is plotting against us thing at the end of A Realm Reborn was just a red herring? Yep. Or misinterpreted by the fans? <laughs> People are like, Tataru is evil! And I mean, even through, like, Carvalain, it was still trying to help us in the end. It's just, you know, she she knows how to, uh, to make things seem like, oh, we're so evil. But during the part where she was attacking us, so to speak, she was just making us an outfit. I don't think that Tataru, even though she can juggle knives, I'm pretty sure that she is not going to go turn against us. Yeah. She does have a uh, tendency to put the girls in short shorts, though. True. She does not want her ladies wearing pants. <laughs> 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 Maybe it's because she's a Lala, you know, so she gets a good view of the leg. Maybe. I, I don't know. I think we're reading too far <laughs> into this. We're getting into crackhead cannons here. We definitely are. <laughs> Please do not take that seriously. <laughs> but the other Lala 
who is more of a newcomer, but we've also gotten to know more and more in Stormblood, is Kryle. Now, although I couldn't find any information on how Kryle met Minfelia, she does describe Minfelia as her closest friend. And the first time we hear her name is not when she appears in Heavensward, but when the Isle of Val, which is an island off the coast of Charlayan, basically gets wiped off the map by Asians, and Kryle is the only survivor. Now, if you've played Final Fantasy V, you'll realize that Kryle is a bit of a port over of a character in that game. And in 5 and 14, she's the granddaughter of a fellow named Galif Baldesian. In 14, the students of Baldesian are an organization in Charlayan that is also helping the Scions from afar. The Isle of Val was their headquarters. And when it got wiped off the map, Kryle was the only survivor. We assume that she lost her grandfather. Aww. But when we do get to meet her, she also does note that she's adopted as she doesn't have a traditional Lollafella name. Galif Baldesian, being nondescript and generic, is probably just a here. Mm-hmm. We may never know. My guess is he would be a here. It sounds like a here in name. Yeah. But the other fun thing is that in Japanese, obviously you can't pronounce Kryle in Japanese, but it's pronounced like Kururu, which is actually a perfectly suitable Plainsfolk female Lollafella name. And hey, that's what she is. Yeah. So there's a little bit of retroactive fitting there. I guess so. Kryle also has another special talent, which may or may not have to do with her echo power, but she is also quite good at, you could say, reading people, of discerning what they're actually thinking, maybe by their facial expressions or their body language or by their psychology, and then calling them out on it. She does that a number of times, I think. I, I'm remembering Alphano in particular being called out in 4.0 <laughs> at the beginning of it, and I think even earlier than that, too. But Alphano's a frequent target of cryos. <laughs> yeah, it can definitely be used to troll people. But she does it several times in the Warring Triad storyline to Rianje, Unakalkai, Regula, and even one time to Thancred. Now, there's a really interesting conversation that goes on in patch 3.2. They're off in one of the Imperial castrums, and Thancred and Kral have never met before, but we know that both of them are close to Minfilia. So they've got a mutual friend, and Kral says to Thancred in teasing, Tell me, did your time in the wilderness sap you of all your charm, or are you holding it in reserve for your beloved? <laughs> hmm. So she's aware there's something between them. Hmm. Could be romantic, could maybe not be romantic. We'll, we'll get to that a little later, I think. But maybe something about having that strong echo power and actually being able to at times see in people's heads has given her a sense of what the difference is between what people are really thinking and what they're saying. And in fact, she's so strong in the echo that she actually becomes the target for Garlemald. She's the one who gets captured in Stormblood, so that they can use her, subject her to experiments, and try to copy her brain as the template for the artificial echo, the resonant, which subsequently gets installed in Fordola. Poor Fordola. I really feel bad for Fordola because as we see the impact of it, we realize that she's experiencing these echo visions for so many different types of people, and it starts to drive her just completely mad. Oh yeah, this is all new to her, whereas 
it seems the natural Echo users get it at an earlier age. And this makes me wonder two things. One, is the resonant more powerful than any natural Echo? Which I think they did imply. It does seem like it. Like it's Echo and steroids. But also, what kind of pain did Kryla have to go through as a child? Getting these mysterious visions from strangers, and maybe not understanding what was happening to her. And having such an intense gift that it became a dark side. I think we find out a little bit about how things might have been for Kryle in terms of how the Echo was for Fordola. Because we we find out that because Fordola was somebody who did not have the Echo previously and instead had her abilities transferred over to her, she experienced visions of everybody, not just certain people like we see with the Warrior of Light, not just certain people as it seems like Kryle might experience. The Echo isn't controllable for any of these three characters, not for Fordola, not for Warrior of Light, not for Kryle. And so because she's not experiencing quite the same thing as Fordola is, I can't imagine her experiencing exactly the same thing where, for example, early on, she experienced visions all the time. I cannot imagine that happening. That said, there might have been painful flashbacks that she'd seen earlier on, or even now. And it does bring up how does she deal with those things. Yeah, I can imagine that it's a really painful experience for a child to have who doesn't understand what's going on. But in Charlene, hopefully she got the kind of guidance that could help her keep it under control and use it as a gift rather than a painful curse. Or maybe she even experienced it later on. But nonetheless, it does make you wonder, with strong echo visions and being adopted, Kryla must have gone through some hard things in her past. But... She did end up getting into the studium, and she does end up a kind and cheerful person, so we're glad to have her on the team, since we needed another Lala. <laughs> Indeed. I don't know how long she's going to stick around, because it seemed like she was only helping out with Alamigo for Minfilia, seeing as Minfilia has roots in Alamigo. So mm. I'm hoping she sticks around for a little while longer. I really That's do, true. because she's such a great multidimensional character. For sure. You know, another character who I think has a really nice backstory and is one of the more multidimensional ones of the Scions? Who's that? That would be Thancred. Oh, yeah? Well, he's definitely the type that, on first glance, doesn't seem very Archon-like, doesn't seem like an upstanding citizen with high morals <laughs> and a sense of justice. Very true. I did not like Thancred at first, and he's still not one of my favorite characters, but I do like his complexity. I do like how he came about becoming an Archon and a Scion. Oh, tell us about that. So Thancred was born in Western Lenotia in the village of Halfstone. And when he was young, his village ended up becoming obliterated by Leviathan, of all things. Yes. Yeah, so he ended up moving to Limsa Liminza and joined the Rogues Guild. And the only way that he could survive was to steal. So that was how he made his living. He became a thief. Fortunately for him, one of these attempted robberies went wrong. You would think that, oh, it's it's bad. Maybe he got taken by the police. But no, he tried to rob Louisois. <gasps> he tried to rob Louisois and Louisois caught him. So I, I can only imagine what that must have been like for him. Probably pretty scary. But instead of turning him into the Yellow Jackets or the Maelstrom, Elf Grandpa Jesus here, he gave Thancred a chance. 
to change the way that he was going. And so because of that, he wound up in Charlayan. And I guess he ended up becoming rehabilitated, so to speak. He changed his ways and he became an Archon. Now, I can't imagine him really studying anything like Oriange, for example, studying tomes or anything like that. So he might have ended up really specializing in more combat things, in, you know, physical abilities, much like Ida would have done. Indeed. What this shows about Charlayan itself, though, is that so long as you have some sort of merit, so long as you are devoted to studying, then you're allowed in. Even if you've done something bad in the past, you can come in and you can follow what the society believes and you'll still be fine. Yeah. And I imagine that since Louis Fall was such a well-respected figure, his endorsement and protection probably helped a little. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> but it's true. He is not a scholarly type, but he is an Archon. So you could say that he got his PhD in ninja, in badassery. <laughs> Studies. <laughs> it makes for a good pickup line. It definitely does. And hey, he can also win over ladies. He yeah. Can, he can win over ladies even though he's an old man. <laughs> or at least <laughs> I like to consider him an old man. It doesn't seem like he's aged <sighs> since like 1.0. His age is a subject of curiosity, I would say. He's supposed to be in his 30s, but the first time that he appeared in the timeline was... Even before the time of 1.0, it was 15 years from the Romaborn present. What happens in 1.0 is that we actually get a flashback from an even earlier time when Thancred's probably a teenager, and it's a bit too much to go into here, but there's a whole storyline involving a gooboo and some spoiled rich kids from Ulda. And long story short, Minfilia, who was then known as Acelia, who's about 12, had come to Uldah with her father, who was a spy for Alamigo. He dies in this accident, and even though Thancred had nothing to do with this plot gone wrong, the fact that he witnessed the incident and didn't save her father in time still weighs on him, which is pretty noble and also pretty tough, but he just feels so bad that he comes to young Acelia's defense against the cadre of spoiled rich kids, who includes Flamine, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> who has aged, you know, just, just so we can compare how much Flamine has aged and how much Thancred has not aged. <laughs> he at least comes to her defense and gets her the money to bury the father. And there's way, way more to this story that you should definitely look up from your favorite lore resource. That is how Midphelia and Thancred met all those years ago. And they're definitely close. I will say they yeah. are extremely close. He was very much impacted when Minfilia ended up leaving the Scions, shall we say. And, you know, even after that, even during the Grand Malay, for example, he's still thinking about Minfilia. So he definitely cares about her in some way. For sure, for sure. But looking at their history, there's definitely different ways to interpret the relationship. For example, Flamine is Minfilia's adopted mother. So Thancred, is he like an older brother, a best friend, maybe like another parent, or possible romantic interest? It's hard to say, but events in Heaven's Word, at least for me, were kind of giving hints that there was some shipping going on from the writer's perspective. So back to Kryle and trolling people, right? During this scene, she says again, Tell me, did your time in the wilderness sap you of all your charm? 
or are you holding it in reserve for your beloved? And Thancred's response is to make a slight grimace with his face, narrow his eyes, and say, this is neither the time or the place, grumble, grumble, grumble. We've got stuff to do. We're in a freaking imperial castrum. Maybe we shouldn't stand around talking about this. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, Menphilia is dear to me. It is true, but not in the way you think. Fifteen years passed when she was still but a child. There was an incident and a parade. Blah, 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 about the story we just summarized. I feared she would never recover, but in the years that followed, she showed herself to be more resilient than I had ever imagined. And when she learned of her gift, she did not flinch from the responsibility, but sought to guide others on the path. She touched the hearts of all around her. Mine, Louisoise, every scions. In those dark days following the calamity, she was our guiding light, our hope for a brighter future. She had so many dreams, and I would give anything to make them come true. Ah. And then you're like, dang, son, I guess you are a bit of a poet, a bit of a bard. Because that was, that was... That was Quite good. <laughs> that was that was definitely yeah. good. For me, I read that differently because yes, you have the suggestion of is it romantic by Cryl, but then Thancred is saying no, this is not in the way that you think. And I read all that he says as more of a maybe a big brother sort of thing. Like look at how far she's come. I'm proud of her. She's impacted so many people and I would give anything to make sure that that she's happy that she achieved her goals. So I I see that more as a sibling-like relationship than anything. Very, very true. But the thing that gives me pause is that in a fictional setting, there are no words that are used accidentally. The fact is that Kryle has many times demonstrated her ability to read what people are actually thinking, and she has never been wrong. We're in a fictional setting, so for what reason would the writers put this in, but to make the audience think that perhaps this is a possibility. Thancred says one thing, but his face and his actions kind of say another. I think the fact that he hesitates to respond and kind of dodges the question, that's sort of like what you see when people are lying. I think he's answering it pretty straightforward. It's not the way that you think. <laughs> but he is kind of evading the question because of a level of discomfort, maybe not being entirely honest. So either... It's the writer's intention to say, no, Thancred's lying. He really does have romantic feelings for her. Or it's what's known as a red herring, which is, well, the writers are trying to make you think one thing, but it's deliberately misleading you. I think it's a red herring. <laughs> yeah. Well, even though it might be hard to believe that the writers over at Square Enix would want to troll their fans, ship trolling by creators is not unprecedented. <laughs> which I learned being a longtime fan of the anime manga Shonen Powerhouse Naruto. Weeb! <laughs> this is a spoiler for the end of the Naruto series, which has been over for many years, but just in case, at the conclusion of the series, we get confirmed official canon ships. The epilogue is many years later, and people have married and had kids, and now it's the next generation. Naruto ends up marrying Hinata, and Sakura ends up marrying Sasuke. However... For a while there, some people were cheering for Naruto and Sakura, and there are even some very specific lines that were very much hinting that that's the direction that the writers were going in too. So you never really could be sure, but in interviews after the series concluded, the creator Kishimoto went ahead and admitted, yeah, I put in all these hints to make you think that Naruto and Sakura was going to happen, 
But that was just to mess with the shippers. And I'm like, really, dude? Really? Oh, I can't believe you. He's a troll. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's such a troll. Oh, so you got to think of every possibility. <laughs> Indeed. That's what makes fiction interesting. The many interpretations and sometimes getting into the head of the writers. Right. So for now, it's up in the air whether or not Thancred had anything romantic for Menphilia. Well, we're never really going to know for sure unless Menphilia returns to this plane of existence. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit unlikely. But you <laughs> never know. She might come back. Anything is possible. And that, dear listeners, is all we have for you on The Scions of the Seventh Dawn. Now you might be wondering why we haven't gone into Menphilia herself. And that's actually because we plan on saving her for our next episode, which we'll talk about her. She has sparked a good amount of debate over whether or not she is a good character. Some people love her, some people hate her, and we're going to explore more about her and why this argument exists. Oh yeah. Basically what happened when we tried to discuss Menphilia, we ended up with so much content and interesting discussion that essentially Menphilia is getting her own episode. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a good thing to talk about, especially regarding characterization and what to look for in good characterization, what makes good characterization. Indeed. So our next episode will be a special on writing complex female characters. AKA the Minfilly episode. <laughs> so please look forward to that. Until next time, though, we are going to lead into our next segment. Story time. Story time, yes. Every episode, because we love the game so very much, we give an account of something that has happened in-game or out-of-game, in character or out of character, just something that is Final Fantasy XIV related. So in a previous episode, we talked about the Trials of Bahamut, and now that that has concluded, I would like to talk about our experiences doing that. I think that would make for a good story. Indeed, both of us attended, and Trials of Bahamut was a real-life activity known as an escape game, put on by a company called Scrap, who's done many other themed escape games in different franchises. But if you've never been to one before, it may not be easy to understand on first glance, so I'll let Emmy give you the breakdown. Alright, so the two of us went to the scrap games which were occurring in two different cities. I went to one in Orlando and Remix went to one in New York, I believe. Uh-huh. So when you go to these real escape games, it's very much like a room escape game in that you go to some sort of building... In our cases, it was like a convention center or a hotel, some sort of building, and you are getting together with a group of different people, either a preformed group or you just find people who are going to the same event as you, and you are working to solve some sort of series of puzzles in order to get to whatever goal it might happen to be, whether it's escape a room or, in this case, defeat Bahamut. So when we arrived at this place, we were asked to sit at whatever table we were assigned. And because I think Remix's group was entirely preformed, right? Uh-huh. A pre-made, you could say. So Remix's group was preformed, so they just had their entire team of, what was it, six people, I believe, six. ready. And so they just sat down at the table and got ready to go. Now, in my case, we had five people in our group that we had already decided wanted to be on the same team. It was myself, my friend Allie, and then a bunch of his friends who also attended. But we had one more spot that needed to be filled. So we sat down and then eventually somebody came over. 
somebody else got assigned to our table. And as it turned out, it was the creator of Garland Tools. Yes. Yeah. You mean that handy dandy website where you go for your gathering nodes and to see what gate is coming up? Yeah. Like that, or you look up what crafting materials are needed for a given craft is what I like using it for. So that was a pretty nice surprise. So we had our team, and then as part of this game, each player was given a role, similar to a lot of the jobs in Final Fantasy XIV. So the classes included in this game were Paladin, White Mage, Black Mage, and Bard, but also Ranger, which was the typical Archer, and Thief. And my suspicion is that in adapting this game for a real-life format, they were also inspired by Dungeons & Dragons, which also, aside from Black Mage and White Mage, has all of these jobs. Each of the jobs had three basic abilities and then one super ability. For White Mage, it was Region, Black Mage had Thunder 3, and Paladin had the Limit Break, which becomes quite important later on. It does. So basically, when you have all these special moves, you are working to figure out what these special moves might be useful for in regards to the different puzzles and challenges that you're met with. So some of these puzzles were a little bit more, shall we say, based on logic. For example, you were working to find hidden letters and then put them in the correct position to try and figure out the answers to one of these puzzles. Yeah, the first phase was actually pen and paper type puzzles. It was. And then in other phases, you would actually interact with the environment that had been set up almost like a prop stage in this building. Yeah, that part was actually a lot of fun. You were interacting with a lot of the scrap staff who were playing NPCs or monsters or shopkeepers, things like that. And so it was a lot of fun interacting with them. One of my favorite parts personally was because I was the paladin of the group. And here you have, you know, these four big guys. And then the Garland Tools creator was also a pretty tall guy. And then you have me, who's like little Lollafell Paladin, basically. And I had to go up and intimidate this one person (laughs) to get a certain answer for what his favorite spell was. We were talking to a wizard and we had to figure out what his favorite spell was. So I had to use intimidate to get this answer out of the guy. For a little while, you were actually Scoot. Exactly. I was actually Scoot. (laughs) So I thought all in all the puzzles were pretty fun, although they were easy, in my opinion. We we ended up clearing it with about 10 minutes to spare of the 30 minutes that we had to defeat Bahamut. So I thought overall it was it was pretty easy, but overall it was a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad that you thought it was easy because I didn't have a lot of trouble for whatever reason with these puzzle games and I felt like I was being carried (laughs) (laughs) by my team. And we did clear it, but we probably had less than a minute to spare. Oh, wow. And the funny thing was that in several instances, we didn't actually know for sure what the right answer was, but we took our best guess and ended up guessing correctly and that got us through. For example, the final puzzle to defeat Bahamut requires you to put a Mughal plush, which was on the table, inside a treasure chest, lock it in the Bowl of Embers for the Mughal's protection so that the Mughal can use rays on the party. Our logic was actually that we had to sacrifice the Mughal by putting him (laughs) in the Bowl of Embers. So we didn't remember at the time that the treasure chest would protect him. We're all like, yeah, kill the Mughal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, ours was a lot more. We have a chest. 
we have a phoenix down. The Moogle obviously needs to go in the chest. <laughs> so yes. So we did the right thing for the wrong reason. I like your though, reasoning I mean, better. Me, I like your reasoning a lot better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to me, that was the right reason. So one other thing that I would like to talk about that was kind of, I guess, entertaining, also pretty sad, was that the way that you defeat Bahamut involves everybody in your party dying. And the only one who gets resurrected by that phoenix down, because you only have one, is the paladin. And so if it were a random party finder kind of group, you know, you'd be like, oh, it's pugs. I'll just find another group. It's fine. But because my party involved the player who plays Scoot's wife, Scoot's wife is now dead. Not to mention all your other friends. And all my other friends who I met along the way. And so Scoot was all alone, and I imagine he would have been so, so sad after that. When that happened, even I imagined Scoot crying and whining. Scoot's like, Natsu's, if they were in the same place, Natsu's dead! Allie's dead! No! He would just cry and cry and cry, and... But wouldn't you know it, Scoot's crying was so loud and so persistent that for some odd reason, I don't even remember why... (laughs) Everybody gets magically brought back to life again. By the Eorzean Alliance. By the Eorzean Alliance? Yeah. I, yeah. By so the, by the, way, the Alliance. Alliance. So the Eorzean Alliance is all powerful. They can do anything. But even though they did that, what I thought at that moment <laughs> is because of the Deus Ex Machina, they could do that, but they could not resurrect Horshafon. Uh, well, I mean, they weren't there at the time, but something about, you know, Hydaelyn decides that all the Warriors of Light get to live and... Magical things happen. By the way, the Eorzean Alliance is here the whole time. They are. (laughs) To cheer you on, and they were actually playing on a video screen, specially voiced cutscenes that are definitely not part of the Aroma Reborn storyline, but I believe were done by the Aroma Reborn actors. It seems like it. Basically, these cutscenes are meant to supplement the game and guide you along. And they're kind of interesting because it's kind of like extra content. For whatever reason, Kane is kind of like the unofficial leader and is the one who's mostly guiding you on. I'm glad of that because we actually get spotlight for Kane. (laughs) Yeah, but my problem with this extra content that they're making up just for the sake of the game is it's not written or characterized very well. (laughs) Yeah, that was one thing I noticed, especially Melvib. Like, Raban was Raban. Raban was okay. Um, he was a little bit, maybe not as assertive as he usually is, but it wasn't too bad. But Merlib's voice acting in particular just hit me the wrong way, where she was like, you have to help us. You have to help us, Warriors of Light. Like, it's, it sounded too desperate for the way that she is. I think she's prouder than that. Yeah, and it just, it seemed all wrong. Yeah, even though they may have gotten the official voice actors involved, clearly this was somebody else writing this who didn't capture their personalities accurately and maybe just made assumptions, didn't make them as distinctive. But then when Emmy and I were talking about this and we're like, yeah, what the heck was with that stuff? Man, they didn't characterize them well at all. I realized this is totally non-canon. And then... And then I realized, you know, we're probably the only people that really cared about this. We're the probably. only people that care about the Eorzean Alliance this much. <laughs> See, this is what we get for being so invested in our characters. Like, I've been told, yeah. <laughs> Ali has told me, like, these are just characters. You're looking way too far into it. You're getting way too impacted. And I'm just like, I know. Nope. I know I am. That's the worst part. Uh, at least Nanama wasn't in the cutscenes, because then Very oh, true. we would have torn them apart. <laughs> oh, we would have. You, you know we would have. <laughs> but all in all, Trials of Bahamut was a really good time. 
well-produced, lots of fun, a great way to interact with maybe other people, a great way to interact with other people outside the yeah, house. Outside of uh What is this? Outside of the video game. What? <laughs> yeah, but like FanFest. <laughs> and for me, this pre-made group came from a meetup group of FF14 players in New York City. So it is a nice excuse to come out, hang out, maybe even meet new people from your city. Yeah, and it's great knowing that all these people share a love of Final Fantasy XIV. That's the reason that they're all here, is to take part in this experience that, yes, it's a room escape kind of game, but we're here for Final Fantasy XIV, let's face it. If it were not yep. FF14, we would not be here. So we all have that common interest, and it was a great way to make new friends. Yep, they're just as nerdy as you. Indeed. <laughs> so we both had a really nice time at Trials of Bahamut. And a little bit more recently, we participated in an annual fundraiser that's held throughout the gaming community known as Extra Life. You may have heard of it. But in our case, we were recruited onto the FF14 content creators team, along with many other esteemed folks. And all of this was organized by Gamerscape. So collectively, we would be helping each other produce 24-hour streams. And collectively, we would raise $5,000 to support the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. An Extra Life is also held every year, and they raise millions of dollars for all the participants. Wow, that is great. Yeah, it's a really nice thing to be a part of, just to know that everyone in the gaming community, video games, even some tabletop, were getting together to do something great and help out some kids that really need it. Yeah, all the money that ended up being raised ended up going to Children's Miracle Network hospitals, and Extra Life is still going on. We have to keep in mind, it's still going on until the end of the year. But so far, we've raised that much as gamers, and that is wonderful to know. And as a team, especially as a content creators team, considering so many of us did this for the first time ever this year, we ended up meeting our goal of $5,000. Yes, indeed. But I am proud of the fact that the donation that actually put us over the edge was from a Musecast listener, Dylan Yay! Thorne of Balmung. I'd like to think that role players saved the day. Well, yes, we did. Of course we did. <laughs> Role players are the best. Yeah, all right. But it was our first year, and it was a lot of work learning how to get everything set up. Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> we're definitely more than happy to do it again next year. Yes. So from us at MuseCast to everybody who happened to tune in, everybody who donated, whether it was on our page or through somebody else, just thank you. Thank you so much for, for your generosity and for taking part in Extra Life itself. Even if you couldn't donate, we're glad that you could tune in. Yes, you are all true warriors of light. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. And actually, because we were doing so much on Twitch, it seems they took notice. And we have just recently been accepted into the Twitch affiliate program. Oh my god, we get bits! Yay! What exactly is that, though? Is that- that's a program where you can subscribe to our Twitch channel? Yes. It's the first level of actually making revenue from Twitch. We can accept subscriptions. You can cheer us with bits. So, now you've got a whole new way to support MuseCast. In addition to our Patreon subscribers, anyone can just come on and give us a cheer with bits. So now watching us on Twitch is going to be more fun than ever. So we are looking for feedback, any sort of suggestion that we can get as to what you guys would like to see on our Twitch channel. And there are a number of ways that you can get that feedback to us. You can go to our website, 
at newscastxiv.com. That site is hosted through Tumblr, of course. You can get to us on Twitter at MusecastXIV or find us on Facebook. Just look up MusecastXIV there too. We are very, very, very great at naming things. (laughs) So creative. Very creative, yes. You can also find more of our podcast itself, though, on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Look up MusecastXIV there and you will find us. And once again, if you would like to support us, for what we do, making our podcast, and now I guess expanding our stream too. You can make a donation through one of three ways, either on our Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash musecastxiv. You can also support us through Patreon, where for a monthly donation, you can get access to things like bonus content, things we wanted to talk about but just didn't have the time to do so, or get access to episodes 24 hours before they actually come out, which is pretty neat, if I do say so myself. Or if you would like to make a one-time donation, you can of course do that through our PayPal. For both of those places, you can go to our website, newscastxiv.com, and go to the right side of the page and click on one of the shiny blue buttons. Indeed, everything that we get just goes right back into the show, whether it's covering the production costs, incidentals like equipment upgrades like we've had these problems with our audio cables lately (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what it is but the problem is spreading (laughs) or into prizes and giveaways for example though gamer escape sponsored some of our extra life prizes via square enix we were the ones that contributed the seated nanimo we did from our own pockets indeed and we did that basically because we know that We have a lot of listeners in Europe, in Britain, outside of North America, and the other prizes would not be able to be shipped outside of North America. So the point is, we love you. Yes. (laughs) And so we should. We're willing to spend money on you. And finally, in terms of social media, we do, of course, have our Musecast Discord, where you can talk about all sorts of things roleplay related, whether it is lore related, roleplay advice, just general gameplay things. Oh, yeah. We just want to be a welcoming, fun place. Low sodium, no salt. <laughs> well, somewhat salt, but salt about story-related things. Yeah, well, we want to be salty about the right things. <laughs> right. It's a really great place. I think everybody in there has been absolutely amazing and helpful, just helping out wherever they can whenever anybody needs any sort of assistance. Yeah, it's a great place to hang out and send in your suggestions for what you'd like to see on Twitch. So to find that, again, go to our website, and it is also on the right side of the page. And that, dear listeners, I believe is it for today's episode. So tune in next time when we will be talking about Menphilia. Menphilia. (laughs) (laughs) Please look forward to that. And we do hope to see you on Twitch, on Discord, on Twitter, on Tumblr, anywhere else. But if we don't see you before then, happy adventuring. See you next time. Yep. See you next time. Thank you.